Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Right. Okay, the amazing book of Romans. We are in chapter 12. And thank the Lord for all he's, he's done and continues to do. Glad to see you here this morning, ready to look and study the Word of God. Uh, what, what if I could give you a list of things to work on that if you could master them and stick to them, that you would be guaranteed to leave a legacy to your grandchildren. And if I gave you this list and, and you could be assured that there would be people, maybe even not your grandchildren, but uh, somebody else, just somebody in your life, people you have influence on, but those people would someday be able to stand up and say at your funeral or at the end of your life, say something like this, this that person, that person is my hero. That's one of my heroes. The way they live their life, I want to emulate. If I could give you that list, if I could put that list in your hand, uh, would you be interested? Amen. <laughs> well, then get interested. Because Paul lays out in the rest of Romans chapter 12 that kind of list. What we're about to look at here over the next couple weeks are truly revolutionary behaviors that will help the world out there, the people we work with, the people we're around, it will help the world see Christ in us. People can only see the outside. They can't see our inside. We could say all day that we have the Jesus in us and we love Jesus, but they want to see it in our life. And this is the way that they'll be able to see it. And so Paul lays out a whole litany of stuff for us to look at, practical behaviors. And we'll look at those in just a minute, but let me just catch us up real quick. Last week we saw in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, the only reasonable response to God's saving grace in a person's life. If you take all the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, all the way through Romans chapter 11, you are blown away with the salvation that God gives to man. You are just, you are just, it's like a, it's like a wave that just hits you of God's goodness. And it just, it just melts everything else away. But what is the response to the goodness of God? What is our response to just all that he's done for us? Well, the only reasonable and logical, that's the word Paul uses, logic, the only logical response is full surrender of our life to him. I present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is my reasonable act of worship, a reasonable service. So presenting our bodies to be used for the Lord is the only reasonable response to him. And to not allow then, in verse two it says, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And so not also not to allow the world to force us into its mold, but to be transformed through what? Through right thinking, the way we think. It needs to be a renewed mind, which comes from the right book. You need to be reading the right book. And what's the right book? The Bible, God's word. 
That's the only way we can have a renewed mind. And today, so after Paul says that, if, if that's the case, if we're gonna give our whole lives to him, our bodies as a living sacrifice, and we're gonna be now having right thinking, then here's now how to live that out. Here's how to live out what God wants in our life. And again, this is a pattern in Paul's writings. You see the doctrinal portion in the first part of his epistles and then the practical, how to live it in the, the last part of his epistles. So this is what we're gonna see today. Now here's what I wanna call these over the next couple weeks. These are the difference-making habits of highly effective Christians. The difference-making habits of highly effective Christians. See, as, as, as a family, uh, in our home, one of the things we're doing right now is we're going through the well-known book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. Of course, the, the, the original book is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but uh, this, this book is written by Sean Covey, which is Stephen Covey's son. And it's got some wonderful thoughts, very practical. Some things I'd leave to the side, but some things are, are really great and helpful. But what we will look at now over the next couple weeks in Romans far exceeds anything we will ever read in that book or any other self-help book. This is the word of God for how to behave. And if we follow it, we are guaranteed to make, the, make a difference in the people around us. I don't know about you, but when I look at that list, I think, man, those are the people I like being around. <laughs> those are the people that make a difference in my life when I look at this list. So when Christians live like Christ in the little things, in those little details, it paves the way for great things to happen. The little things give proof that the big things are truly in our heart and that they're genuine. I never want to minimize practical, moral Christian behavior. I think it would be a shame to do that. We don't want to minimize it. It is so important as we live our life. So number one, the number one habit I see here is to think right about self. Think right about yourself. Romans chapter 12 and verse number three. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man, the measure of faith. So Paul starts off by saying, through the grace given unto me. This is not referring to grace for salvation, but the grace he's talking about is the grace for apostleship. Meaning, in other words, Paul's saying, I'm referring, I'm referring to my calling as an apostle, the grace given unto me. Paul's work, his position, his authority, all of that he sees as a gift of God's grace, not something he earned. So I'm saying these things through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you uh, or woman that is among you, meaning he is speaking to each individual in the local church there in Rome originally. And this means all of us need to pay attention. Every individual in every local church and in every corner of the globe needs to pay attention to what he's saying. So this is two churches, two people in churches. And then he says, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Notice it says, not more highly than we ought. Not more highly than we ought. Meaning, there is still some kind of level of thought that we should have about ourselves. It's just not too high. So, we don't want to see ourselves too low, and we don't want to see ourselves too high. This is an obvious a warning and command here from God about pride. 
And I think C.S. Lewis said it the best, and that is pride is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I like that. God isn't telling us to think of ourselves as a piece of trash, but to have the right perspective about ourselves. Notice in this verse, it really is telling us that pride is in our thinking. Don't think of yourself too highly. One pastor pointed out that our mind is where pride and humility live. See, pride is not an outward behavior necessarily. It's what's happening on the inside. So, in other words, you could have someone with a very bold personality, but be very humble. But you could also have a very timid person, and they could be very proud. Pride and humility is how we think about ourselves. In fact, pride has many manifestations, and and it can manifest itself in a way that appears even down on themselves. Uh, always, somebody who's always looking for compliments, somebody's on social media looking for somebody to pay attention to them and tell them how great they are or you're in whatever. In, at work, somebody's always fishing for compliments about themselves. Let me tell you, that's actually a form of pride. It's thinking of myself too much. Now, it can manifest itself in boastful bragging as well, but it can both can be uh, just a, just consuming ourselves with self. We need to think biblically about who we are, about ourselves. And that's what it says here. God says, think soberly. Think soberly about yourself. That word soberly means balanced, sane, in your right mind. Don't have too high and don't have too low a view of self. It needs to be soberly. It needs to be biblically. And as, then he says, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. A similar phrase there is found in verse 6, according to the proportion of faith. And we'll see that in a minute. But I, and that phrase is, is kind of hard to um, interpret really. But I think what Paul is saying is that we can't think of ourselves here too highly because it is God who gives each believer a special calling and the necessary faith to fulfill that calling. It comes from him. The faith that he's talking about right here is not saving faith because it doesn't fit the context. What some call this faith is working faith or this ability to exercise the faith necessary to carry out the work of God. It's the gifting, it's the power, it's the ability to carry out what God has called you to do, your unique calling in this world. In other words, if God wants you to do something for him, then he will give you the amount of resources necessary to accomplish that task. Where God guides, he provides, some people say. Paul is making sure that no one can say this. I got myself to this position. I'm something special. I'm here. I'm more spiritual than everybody because I have this particular job or I do this particular thing in the church. Uh, What Paul is saying is, listen, what you have comes from God. Everything you have, even the faith to be able to accomplish that, it really comes from the Lord. So stop bragging. Stop thinking of yourself too highly. You're you're just somebody in, in in God's family. So to illustrate that, Paul uses one of his favorite analogies, and that's, I think, why this is so important, how it fits together. And Paul uses it several times in the New Testament, and that is the analogy of the human body. 
And that's our next habit that I think we see in the next couple verses. Don't forget that you're one part of the whole. You're one part of the whole. Verse four, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members of another. These are wonderful statements of unity here. Uh, I can't go too deeply into them for time's sake, but they're so beautiful. Think about this, many members or body parts, that's what he's talking about. So he says we are many members in one body. Many body parts make up the one. I have lots of body parts, but I'm still one person. And every one of those body parts and every body part is part of and useful to the mission of the whole body. Uh, every, every body part that I have is being guided by my brain and we are moving forward and everything's working together. As a church, that's the point. We're all doing this thing together. We're all, each individual has a, you're a body part, but we're all part of one. We are one. Now, you may not be happy about it, but you need me. <laughs> and I need you. That's what this is saying. The church is a place where we do life together. And we need each other. The church is better than the three musketeers. One for all and all for one. We are, we, are, we are to each operate as a body part individually. We need to know our part and we need to do it, do it well. But we also need to keep in mind that to, we are part of one. It is, we, are made, we make up one dynamic body in Christ. Now a few other things I noticed about this, these verses and that is this. One that it doesn't say one body part does everything. That's impossible. Eyes can't do what the hands do. So it doesn't say one body part does everything. Not one person should be doing everything in the church. It also doesn't say that God wants everyone to have the same body part. Imagine if everyone was trying to be the mouth at the same time. What a disaster that would be. The body needs each part to know what it's supposed to do and do it. And one more thing I notice here, that no body part is supposed to be operating outside of the head. That is Christ. As it says here, we are one in him, in him, in him. This is his body. We are in his body. More, that means we need to stay under his authority and his headship. If we come out from under the authority of Christ, we're not acting like uh, we're, we're just a, a body part that's, that's being rebellious. Then, once we, we know our body part, we ought to do it. We ought to do what we do. And how do we do that? What do we do? Well, I think the next verses, as Paul launches into them, tell us basically to do what we're called to do. And here's the next habit, and that is to get busy doing your part. The habit of highly effective Christians is they get busy doing their part. Verses six through eight, let's read them, and then we'll go back and break them up, break them up a little bit. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity or sincerity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. All right, so Paul says, you see, 
since we're all parts of this body, God has done something very special to make sure that each body part has something uh, that they need, has what they need to get the job done. And each, each Christian, each body part gets what is called in English here a gift. Every body part gets a gift. In Greek, the word is charisma, charisma. It's a gift or it's a divine endowment. It's something that comes from God. You didn't ask for it, God just gave it. It's by the grace of God, he just decided here is your gift. Here is your, here is your special enablement. We might call it a supernatural ability or supernatural enablement for the specific job that you are called to do. The English word, again, we use is gift. So traditionally, people call these spiritual gifts. There are seven of them listed here in Romans chapter 12. There are others, but it, it's not, this is not an exhaustive list. There's more in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. However, here in Romans 12, these ones are very... Um, they're beautiful. They are pretty much represent most of what we see often in the, the local church. And a lot has been said out there about spiritual gifts. And a lot of, has been written. And, uh, and so we're not going to go into huge, huge detail. But I will say this. I like of a lot of what I hear out there about spiritual gifts. A lot of good stuff. And there are some tests you can take online to help you identify which gift you have as a believer. And the, te- the tests... Uh, those spiritual gift tests can be helpful, ish, <laughs> ish. I, I I used to love personality tests and spiritual gift tests. I would try to take them all and see where I was, and um, <laughs> and but I think sometimes the danger is that they get a little too detailed, and they start to put people in boxes that God didn't really intend, and they go a little further than I think they need to go. I think the most helpful things when we look at a passage like this, and that's what he says here, you know, if you're, if you're the gift of prophecy, then go out there and prophesy. If your gift is, is serving, as we'll see in a minute, go out there and serve. Basically, he just says, go, get busy. Whatever you got doing, just do it. I think the most helpful thing is to just get busy working within the church and discover what your charisma is. And remember, you don't really ask for your charisma. God just puts it in you. It's similar to what happens in the physical world. You know, I could practice every single day, play basketball from morning until evening every single day and never be Michael Jordan and never be near as good as him. Yes, Michael Jordan did have to work very hard, but there was just some gift he was born with that didn't come from him. He had something special in him. And in the spiritual realm, it's very similar we all need to work very hard for the Lord. Uh, we just, we, listen, if we need to vacuum, vacuum. It doesn't require a special gift to vacuum. Just get busy for the Lord, doing something for Jesus, helping others, whatever we can do. And then we're gonna discover there is a special charisma. There's something in us that God has given us that helps us do more than we ever could have done or accomplished alone. There's some supernatural strength I have to really be a blessing in this way. The first charisma Paul mentions is prophecy. Now prophets, the word prophet is uh, prophets in the Old Testament and New Testament were not only foretellers, meaning they told the future, but they also were foretellers. Means simply that they just proclaimed the word of God. At the most basic 
definition, a prophet is just someone who proclaims what God has said. They are God's mouthpiece to the world. And today, we see more forth-tellers than we do foretellers. Because, really, we already hold the word of God in our hands. And the prophets have already given us the word of God. Now, prophets still may be out there saying things, and we're not going to limit God in that. But, but it is, if it doesn't line up with God's word, then they are not a prophet. But, in the sense of the office of a prophet. But listen, all of us should be a prophet in some sense. All of us should be proclaiming God's word. Every single one of us. But some, some people have a special ability from God, a charisma. They have a special calling and they have a special enablement to preach and to proclaim the word of God. They teach, they write messages and, it, and just somehow it penetrates and convicts the hearts of men and the souls of people just in a way that only God could do. And I believe that is the gift of prophecy. The next one here he mentions is the gift of uh, ministry. That word just is, is, in Greek, it's diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. And it just means practical serving. Practical serving. I love this one. And I love the fact that God puts this one right up here after prophet. Jesus said, you know, if you want to be great, learn to be a servant of all. All of us, every single Christian should serve practically. We should, we should find ways to serve others. But some, some people have a special calling and enablement, a charisma to, uh, to serve people. They, they don't have to be told to meet someone's need. They are just, they are just have a radar for people's needs and they will meet it. They will jump to meet a need. They jump into clean, change diapers in our nursery. They make, they serve coffee, they hammer nails, they set up tables and chairs. They just help out wherever they can. Those are the kind of people that just, it's in them to want to serve the needs of others. They are gifted to discern and know how to help and then just do it. Then there's the gift of teaching, Paul mentions. These are people who are gifted in bringing the complexities of the Bible into focus. Again, all of us should try and help other people understand the Bible better. That's a job that we all should do. But, but some have a special charisma for it. They have a gift. These are men and women, men and women, who can take the written word of God and make it come alive to the listener, the person they're sitting with, a child or a teenager or anybody, and they can make that Bible come alive. They are able to wisely form principles and, and things that really help Christians know how to obey God in a better way, in a greater way that they never thought of before. The church needs gifted teachers in every age group. And then Paul mentions this gift of exhortation. This is the gift that's similar to the Holy Spirit. It's the Greek word parakleo, which is a similar word to uh, what the Holy Spirit is called in the Bible. They are the encouragers, the exhorters, the encouragers. They do all they can to help people grow in Christ. They are trying to encourage everybody around them to just grow, grow, grow in Christ. See, teachers give information. Exhorters give inspiration. They, they come alongside you. They comfort you, but they also show you the truth. And they give you that push to do the right thing. They, they warn you. They talk to you. They have a God-given gift for pumping people up for Jesus. 
all of us should exhort. All of us should encourage people. But some, some have a special God-given charisma to do this. Now, I want to say something before we look at the last three. These first four here, God basically says, listen, if, you're a prophes- if you have the gift of prophecy, then go prophesy. Do it. Proclaim. If you're a teacher, go out there and teach. Just do it. Get, to bu- get busy. Do your job. But then these next three, he gives some special little instructions that go along with the gifts. Maybe because what we're about to look at, these ones can get pretty grueling. And they require extra discernment when we use them. The next one here is giving. The gift of giving. These people are gifted at looking for worthy opportunities to give resources and then doing it. All of us should give. All of us should give. But some have a special calling and enablement and the means to do it. Just a little side note here. I wonder sometimes if that even alone itself might be part of the gift. If God gives somebody a lot of means... Maybe that is one of the things that God is asking that person to do is be a giver. Have the gift of giving. The person with the charisma of giving gives above and beyond the average Christian. And by the way, I just want to say thank the Lord for these people because they probably pick up the slack for a lot of Christians who aren't doing what they should. The work of God could not be where it is today without people with the gift of giving. Like they, do. they, they don't want their names on plaques. They don't want their names on buildings. They just want to bless other people and bless the needs of God wherever it may be. And Paul says, when you do this, if you have the gift of giving, do it with simplicity or sincerity. Do it with a sincere motivation to help people. Sincere motivation to help. That's your heart. And then ruling or leading. These gifted people, he says, possess, or the, this gift from the Lord, it seems to be those that possess an unusual ability to provide guidance and administration. They can lead people and set things in order that are lacking. They're organizers. They organize people. They organize tasks. They organize the body of Christ. They're people who can manage and run ministries. They think of systems and organizational ways to help churches meet the needs of hundreds of people, not just dozens or not just a few. You know, it's amazing how many more people we can serve for the Lord's sake when we are organized. Some people say, I don't, I don't believe in the organized church. You, you believe in the disorganized church? That's a horrible thing. Listen, organize, listen, we are an organism as a church. Yes, we are an organism, not just an organization. But, but even, even in organisms that God has created are organized. God loves organization. And he gives people this gift. You know, think about it as a pastor. If I, I could, we could do it this way, where everybody sits in the, in the seats and the pastor goes out there and greets every guest or tries to greet as many guests as he can and then runs over to the children's ministry and teaches a, a, a children's ministry class, then runs in here and teaches an adult class, then runs to the babies and holds, rocks the babies for a little bit, then go out. We could try that. Or we could have someone organize and schedule multiple greeters, and that all those people could give a warm welcome to all the people who come in, and we could get way more that way, way more greeted with a warm welcome that way. Someone can organize and lead the children's ministry and teach hundreds of children rather than just a few. Someone can organize and lead the youth ministry, and we can impact hundreds of teenagers for the Lord and not just a few. 
You can reach more and do more with someone with the gift of leadership and administration. But you need a gifted leader or organizer to do all that. And Paul says for them to do that, when they do it, they need to do it with diligence. That is with passion. Zeal is what he's really talking about there and a concentrated attention. Perhaps he said that because organizing gets bogged down in details and it's hard to keep a passion for charts and data. (laughs) But it is so important to the body of Christ and we need to do it with zeal. And then lastly, he gives the gift of mercy. These amazing people have an extraordinary ability to sense the hurts of others and know what to say and know what to do in the right times. All of us should be, should be givers of mercy, but some have a special calling to it and a special ability to do it. They comfort the sick, they weep with the hurting, and they, want, they are the people who want to be there when a person dies. I've seen multiple Christians want to, standing there with people as they die, as they enter from this world into the next world, and they are just there holding people's hands, singing sometimes, praying. These are the mercy people. They are the people that you want by you in your darkest days. And Paul says, listen, if you're going to have mercy on others around you, do it without grudging or do it without complaining. Why would he say that? Maybe because it's easy to start complaining as a mercy person because you get tired of all the messes that people get themselves into. And it's hard to keep showing mercy when somebody keeps falling down and, uh, and in a thing of their own, mess of their own making. But we just, we need to have mercy. Where do you see yourself in this list? When you look at that list, you can see how wonderful that is, though, for a church, can't you? This is what we want here. I thank the Lord that I see these kinds of things happening all the time here at the home church. All of the time. But we have to keep in mind they are gifts to be used in the church and not abused. I like what Warren Wiersbe said, spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with or weapons to fight with. A hammer is a wonderful tool when it's used for its intended use. But when a hammer is used to beat someone, it's deadly. We have to be careful with our gifts. They are tools to be used. God may have blessed you, but your gift needs to be used under his authority. Don't take it outside of his authority. We are simply tools in God's tool shed. But if you notice, the main thing here in all of this is really just get busy. Just do it. If we just think about spiritual gifts, then no one gets blessed. We have to get out there and use those things and make a difference. Now, next Paul launches into a rapid-fire list of practical instructions for Christian living. We're going to look at just a couple today, but in this list, there's about 25 or 30 things, depending on how you count them. 25 or 30 things. You say, well, wow, all these lists in the Bible, this is a wonderful list. It will help us be able to make a difference in the people around us. It, these are the habits of highly effective Christians. These are huge ways to make an impact and leave a legacy. So here we go. The first one I see here in verse 9 is, a lo- is to love genuinely, abhor evil, and adhere to good. Love genuinely, abhor evil, adhere to good. See, there's three right there in one. That's why it's hard to count them. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Remember, he's talking to Christians in a church. These are Stuff for us church people. First thing he says is agape, love, without dissimulation. The Greek word there is anipokritos, anipokritos, 
which means impersonation, simulating. It's where we get our word hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite with your love. On the Greek stage, the actors would bring out masks and they would change out their mask depending on what, what they were playing at the moment on the stage. They would, pre- they would pretend to be many different characters. God says for believers, love people without any masks. Have true, unpretended love for everybody around you. See, if hypocrisy creeps in, then love is not love anymore. We start treating people like objects that are here to serve me. Our love then becomes manipulation. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Our love becomes then competition or trying to get something out of someone else. You know as well as I do, it is no fun to be around a person who has an agenda. God wants us to love each other genuinely. Genuine. Love for love's sake. Love because I love you. That's it. Expecting nothing in return. I'm supposed to love you simply because you have value as a person that God created and loved. That's it. And, just to let you know, you're supposed to love me too, okay? If, if you think about it, just this one command right here, genuine love, would radically change the way we see people and how we relate to people. You want to make a difference in someone else's life? Just start genuinely loving people for people. Just have that heart. And then he says, abhor evil and cleave to good. That's about as self-explanatory as it gets. I don't know how to make that any simpler. But I will say this. The word abhor here means to have a horror of. Have a horror of evil. And cleave or glue or adhere to good. Do you abhor evil? See, the reason many will not be free from sin is they still love evil too much to let it go. We need to have a horror of sin. It's one of the most grieving realities in churches since the beginning. And that is that when young people who have grown up in the church, they know God's word, but then choose the exact opposite of this command right here. They abhor good and choose evil. They cling to evil. They cleave to evil. They break the heart of God and all the people who love them, their parents and everybody who invested so much in them. Young Christians and and old ones sometimes, not just young ones, think it's freedom to run after the evils of this world, then someday they find themselves in a prison of their own making, like cords of sin wrapped around them. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself and shall be holden with the cords of his sins. In my leading from the couch book about for family devotions, I suggest this Bible time with children. You take that verse, We've, I've done this one a couple times with my family throughout the years. You p- take a piece of thread and wrap it around your child. And you say, all right, see if you can break free. Easy. All right, now let me take a couple threads around. and Yeah, it's a little harder, but I can break it. And then you just go a bunch of cords around. The more thread, the, you, we may think those little sins are no big deal, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal. But pretty soon we are trapped with the cords of our sin and we cannot break free. It becomes extremely hard. Once, once sin gets a few wraps around you, it's, it's done. One pastor said, we heard at our college retreat, I loved his statement, he said, fight sin when it's small. Fight sin when it's small before it gets so large that it'll eat you up. As God's word says, abhor evil and cleave to good. 
I think that little phrase is so important that it's actually become a habitual prayer for my children has for many years. When I put them to bed as little kids, I almost every night would pray, Lord, help them love the right and hate the evil. Love the right and hate the evil. A quick note, this statement assumes that there is, real quick, a moral law that has already established an unchanging code. There is a right and there is a wrong in this world. And through Paul's teaching, we see that God has set the moral law for the world and it's still very much in effect in every generation. Uh, By the way, if you don't think the world knows the moral law of God, just a reminder here, (laughs) the world will hold Christians accountable for keeping the moral law that they don't keep themselves. Those people at work, they're going to be quick to call you on the carpet when you mess up. If you're going to make a difference in the lives of people, we have to abhor evil and cleave to good. And lastly this morning, and that is to treat each other like family and put others before self. Treat each other like family and put others before self. Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. You know, God takes love and makes it even more practical and warm with this statement right here. I love this statement. Be kindly affectioned one with another in brotherly love or with brotherly love. In Greek, it's philostorgos with Philadelphia. Philostorgos with Philadelphia. Means to have family affection for one another. In other words, there should be a warm kindness between every Christian because why? We're family. Amen. We're family. Many of us would say, well, it's, it's kind of hard to be kind to my family. <laughs> and that may be true. But we put every effort into this. And no effort that we put into being kind to our family goes to waste. Why, why do we do that with our physical family? Why should we be kind to our physical family? Because we're stuck with them for life. So you might as well be as kind as you can. But listen, it's the same with believers too. We need to put every effort into being kind with one another because guess what? We're stuck with each other for eternal life. <laughs> but I think we can all identify with that statement. I hear often, and I feel it too, often, oftentimes the spiritual family is closer even than our physical family. As a good pap- Baptist growing up as a little child here in this church, early days we sang the song Family of God a lot. I was always fascinated by how clear those lyrics were to understand even as a kid. You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tear and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. That's how it's supposed to be between us. And you see the power of a song. That truth is lodged into my head. As Paul says later, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Listen home, church. Can I just say this? Don't let petty things Break up your kindness for your family here. Don't let petty things break up this, what we've got going here. How do we do that? It says here, in honor, preferring one another. I don't know about you, but that does not sound easy. In honor, preferring one another. Honor has the idea of value. In other words, we see the value in them and give them preferential treatment over myself. The New Living Translation says, and take delight in honoring one another. English Standard Version says, outdo one another in showing honor. Philip's translation says, and have a willingness to let the other man have the credit. My mom version, my mom, was let your sister have the last piece of pie. (laughs) 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 I have to remember what my mom said often when my wife and I, we share a can of 
Zevia soda. See, we try not to re drink regular soda, and that's all. So that's our alternative, Zevia, because but it's expensive. So we don't want to both drink it. I know I'm a cheapskate, so that's that's a different issue in my life. We can talk about that later. But I, I try to leave. We, so we try to share this, and we try to split it just right at dinner time. I try to leave enough soda for her, but but I'm thirsty. Right? Okay. In honor, preferring one another. Pray for me that I get better at this, okay? But thankfully, she needs prayer also. So pray for both of us on this, okay? <laughs> Here's the point. In a church, we must have this attitude of preferring one another. When a church is kindly affectioned, people want to be a part of that. I, I, I know we're a little bit, a few minutes, but I have to read this to you. This is a, an email that came in about, from somebody who visited our church um, back in January. It's a young gal came to our college, she started here and then came to our college career group. She said, thank you so much. I enjoyed the home church service and the college and career group. I'm disappointed I wasn't able to come to another college and career group this Christmas break. I got sick on Christmas and for the week that followed. I'm looking forward to coming again when I'm home for the weekend or on a school break. I really appreciated how friendly and welcoming the people of the home church were, especially the young adults in the college and career group. I've been to more than my fair share of churches I don't think I've ever felt as welcomed and glad to be seen there as a first-time guest. What a great word. And recently, a man in our men's breakfast shared, there's just something about the people at this church. I just want to be around them. Let me just say, that's a great word about you, but let me just say real quick here, that's also a great word about your pastor. Yes. Pastor Tim tries very hard to be a warm and loving pastor and lead the way on this issue. In fact, I told my dad when we had our pastor's retreat back in January, I, I told him, I appreciate that you have helped build a, uh, a culture of kindness, really, in this church. You lead the way in that, of warmth and kindness. And I know he believes that no matter what's going on in his life or how bad things are for him or whatever might be happening, there's no reason to be cold with people. There really isn't. And listen, I know the home church is far from perfect on this, okay? That's not what I'm saying. We don't always get it right. We don't. And just like my issue with the soda and my wife, I don't always prefer others like I should or like I want to. All of us could work on kindness at times. But that's why we have this challenge from the Apostle Paul. All churches need this challenge. Everybody does. So keep reaching out. Keep loving each other. Keep being warm and kind to everybody. That's what we're family. And stay away from evil and cleave to good. Let's this is all the legacy building power. These, all these little things build up to these big things that actually, actually make a huge difference in people's lives. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, Thank you for joining us.